0: for a show by a brother and sister who are polar opposites but who both found a calling running solo businesses this is the unfederated
1: podcast hey brother hey sarah how's it going
2: pretty good um it's the morning and we usually record these at night so i wonder how that's gonna (laughs) make a difference
1: you you don't have your usual cocktail
2: yeah i'm not holding a beer and a cocktail (laughs) (laughs) which um, i'm sure you're relieved to know i don't do in the morning yeah (laughs) Um, (laughs) so (laughs) would you call yourself a uh a risk taker
1: uh i i would not I that not. was a hard
2: segue but i thought it was yeah yeah, yeah no. you are right well by comparison yeah i think i uh, just you. know if you like,
1: self-identify as such
2: <laughs> i'm not in the like great wide world i don't think but um yeah, growing up when there's only two siblings, there's always like the blah 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 one, and uh-huh. you were very the risk averse one, which I think in the wide world you are still the risk averse one. That's fair. Um, and and I'm more of a risk taker, but not um, nearly as much as a lot of the people I know. Um so <laughs> you have then probably not been uninsured before right Uh
1: that is correct uh, I've had a few job transitions where I had to make some moves to keep everything together Um but I've managed to to go from place to place without any kind of lapse in coverage
2: That's awesome Yep Is that Okay that that's what you would recommend then for people
1: Uh yeah yeah if you can And and you're asking me this question because why
2: <laughs> well we've talked about this before there's some things that you and I have differently and they're different about our freelance situations and the decisions we made to to leave and go out on our own but both of us were able to figure out kind of a solution for health insurance that took it off the table and didn't make it an impediment to us mm-hmm. um, that is really unique to our situations you know my husband is in healthcare and so I have insurance through him um, and also I can just tell him all of my health complaints all the time. (laughs) So I have a real like 24-7 doctor situation. Um, And most people don't have that. And um, we talked about how a lot of, I mean, that's a lot of the questions that I get from people who ride in or um, see me on the streets. They'll say like, well, what about health insurance? Because I have a family. And if I've just been let go and I'm considering, well, maybe this is the time to um, set up shop. Well, COBRA lasts for a short period of time. And if I don't have a long-term solution for that, I mean, I can't pay for insurance just as a single policy. That'd be unreasonably expensive. And usually, the, I mean, I would say the threat of not having insurance or the fear of not having a solution dissuades people from actually um, setting up shop and going out on their own.
1: Yeah, I 100% think that's true. That's the number one concern I hear. And, and to your point you just made, it's more of a, a, a lack of knowledge about what's available and, and how it all works. Uh, as it, as much as it is like true lack of access to um, healthcare or, or health insurance. And so so we thought we'd do a show on it. You and I have talked about we've kind of beat around this a lot in previous episodes, but we are not experts in the space. Um, so we have uh, asked our first guest ever on the show to come on. Um, his name is Austin Jett, and he is a, uh insurance agent here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a, a good a friend of a friend uh, for me who came on – High recommendation. Uh, So we thought we'd ask Austin to to join our show today so we could pick his brain a little bit about all the things that we probably should know about insurance as freelancers. Uh, Welcome to the show, Austin.
0: Good morning. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, excited for you to be here. So uh, as Sarah alluded to, this is something that everyone that we talk to either it's, it's a kind of a secondary concern that, that they're managing their business and they're, they're actively working to figure out health care, uh, in the background, or it's the thing that keeps them tied to their traditional nine to five. And so we, uh, we wanted to have you on so you could kind of walk us through what some of the options might be. Um, and get us uh, a sense of kind of some of the pros and cons of each, what we can be thinking about if we're on the fence um, about taking that jump or if we find ourselves suddenly looking for uh, coverage or care um, unexpectedly, which happens a lot in our space. Um, if you don't mind, we, you know, I, I think there's a handful of options. I'll kind of let you dictate kind of the order we talk through them in, but um, let's just jump in.
0: All right, sounds good to me. So, you know, I think you all alluded to it a little bit here in your introduction there. There's a lot of things changing in healthcare right now. There's a lot of discussion around it. Amazon's entering the space. And, you know, with that, anytime Amazon gets into anything, there's a lot of noise around that. And really, it comes down to, you know, if people were to identify the problems with healthcare and how we access healthcare and you know buy insurance and to me it's all sort of tied in together it's not just you know insurance is separate from the other parts of it it's just one part of it and the solutions to that it's coming down to trying to solve two things so one is access to care how do i get access to to my medical providers in a timely fashion and in a way, that's meaningful to me. And the other is the cost of care, right? So insurance costs are going up. It's more and more expensive to go to the doctor. We hear more and more about prescription drugs being more and more expensive, which can be true, but also at the same time is not necessarily true. And it comes completely down to you know, what drug you're on and what doctor you're seeing. So we've seen a lot of things change, um, part of it because of the Affordable Care Act. And so I would, I would characterize the time we're in right now as really being the, the post-ACA time. So, you know, we've moved through the Affordable Care Act. There's things that could still change, um, but some things have been uh, dialed back. And and the market has really responded to, um, you know, those guidelines from the government. And and it's still a moving target, but in a lot of ways, we've moved through that. So, you know, to me, there's several different things out there. Um, And Rob, do you want me to just kind of start and go through the first one?
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: Okay. So, you you know, starting on the most traditional end of the spectrum for somebody who's a freelance worker or somebody who's not tied to an employer or even somebody who's thinking of starting a business. If you're starting a business or or have a small business, you can always go buy group insurance from one of the insurance companies, right? So, the Affordable Care Act puts some guidelines around those individual – or excuse me, those small group plans, how the rates are done on those Um, And for small businesses starting out, while it may be expensive, and that's a relative term, one thing the Affordable Care Act did was it gave rate stability. So in the past, small groups as small as five or ten employees would be underwritten, meaning their rates were determined based on how their claims were running, meaning how much are people accessing the health care, how much are they using the insurance. If you have somebody who's very sick and it's costing a lot of money, their rates will be a lot higher. It it was uh, the rates were determined based on your industry and your demographic. Do you have a lot of you know young females of childbearing age? That's going to drive the cost up. Do you have a lot of older males? They tend to be the most expensive demographics. So in the past, that was something. Your industry is it a dangerous industry or an industry that you know usually has higher claims than others? You can get punished for that. The Affordable Care Act came along and said none of that matters anymore. The only thing that matters is the ages of the participants on your plan. So if you have an average age at your company of 30 years old, you're going to have much less expensive insurance than somebody who has an average age of 50 years old. And that was really the only determining factor. So year after year, you could see a steady rate increase, or maybe you would even see a decrease from time to time for your group, but you wouldn't see huge spikes or huge dips. So from the standpoint of trying to manage the cash flow of a company and budget, that helps small businesses. Now, for individuals, it's sort of the same thing. If you want to go to Blue Cross or United or Aetna or Cigna or Humana or whoever the insurance company is and buy an individual plan, you can do that. And you'll see that same sort of rate stability as well, but that's where the individual workers tend to really feel the pain because that same exact plan for an individual that you would buy for a company of even two or three people through a group plan is typically going to cost somewhere from one and a half times to two times as much as the group plan. So that's where people start to feel it's prohibitively expensive. So that's, you know, out of that, we've seen a lot of different things uh, develop and new solutions coming
1: out. Yeah. I saw that exact same thing when I made my last transition, I I had the, when I last shopped out insurance, I, I actually found a, uh, a personal plan, um individual plan that that mimicked exactly what I have access to now. Um and which is more of a group setting and and it was one and a half times just for the premium and it wasn't, you know, a particularly strong policy. I mean it wasn't the Cadillac plan by any stretch of the imagination, but you go from having also in that scenario I think for a lot of freelancers you go from a place where your employer is paying part of that. A premium to a place where you're paying a multiple of it all on your own, which which I think is uh, wrecks a lot of budgets, quite honestly.
0: Um, yeah, no doubt about it. And, and in fact, if you solve for that element that my employer was paying for part of it, let's say my employer was paying for half of it, and that's typically about as low as you'll see an employer go. Most are paying more than that. Well, now all of a sudden, I'm paying three times as much or four times as much because I'm assuming the entire cost but on a multiple of 1.5x or 2x of the total cost of that group plan. So you could see something that is just a huge shock if you go on your own. Now, what I will say about that is, because people are always wondering, well, are, are individual plans the same thing as, huge air quotes, Obamacare or exchange plans? Well, yes and no. The plans themselves are the same, but when somebody says to me, Obamacare, to me, it refers to the subsidy program that was that was laid out and implemented under the Affordable Care Act. And so if somebody is earning in the range of one hundred and twenty five percent, I believe, up to four hundred percent of federal poverty line, and I'll explain what that means, then they're eligible for certain subsidies. What that really means is if somebody's earning from roughly say twelve thousand dollars a year up to an individual of about forty eight thousand dollars a year, they're eligible for subsidies under the Obamacare exchanges, the ACA exchanges. For family of four, say those numbers are somewhere in the range of family household income of about $25,000 to about $100,000 per year, give or take a few dollars. If you fall into that and you don't work for an employer who offers you coverage that is considered to be affordable under the law, it's a lot of if-then statements, then you are eligible for subsidies. So, if I'm an individual out there and I'm earning in that window and I'm a family of four from $25,000 to $100,000 a year, I am eligible for some subsidies under uh, the ACA exchanges. And that's on a sliding scale. So, somebody who is making household income of $40,000 a year or, say, an individual income of $20,000 a year Will pay less for the same plan because they're further down the sliding scale than somebody who's closer to forty thousand individual or that you know ninety to one hundred thousand dollars for a family of four, but a significant portion of the premium can be subsidized. So you can't go into the exchanges at any time when we hear if you're paying attention out there and you know you hear about open enrollment for exchange coverage, which happens in November. That is when you can apply for, and receive the subsidies. But if you work for a small business, you know, if you're somebody who comes and goes and you're going to do a year with a company who offers you benefits, affordability is something defined under the law. It is not something that is relative to what I think is affordable. And that's something where people get confused. They say, well, this coverage isn't affordable. I can't afford this. I'm going to go get subsidies on the exchange. They apply for them, and then they may have to pay them back at tax time. So... um, you know, but it is the same plans, but it's just some the subsidies that are available to those plans if you qualify financially.
1: I'll ask a question I don't know the answer to, um, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, so when we talk about open enrollment, and that's something that if if you know you're a freelancer and you've had your eye on the space at all, you've at least heard the term. Um, we there's also qualifying events. There's things that might happen, for example, a job loss where all of a sudden you are able to enroll in coverage, even though it's not that open enrollment time. Um, are are you, Do you have access to those same subsidies if you fall into that um, category, if you have a qualifying event that allows you access, or are you on your own until the next November when that open enrollment season starts back?
0: Yes, you can. And I'm glad you asked the question because for somebody who is coming out and going on their own it creates a qualifying event, if their income qualifies them, then, they would be eligible to uh, access the subsidies um, off cycle. But it can't just be that, you know, well, I've been uninsured for six months and I want insurance and it's July. No, that person would have to wait until the next open enrollment. If there's a true qualifying event, which, you know, in simple terms means I was working somewhere, I had coverage, I'm no longer working there, I don't have coverage for, you know, the purpose of this audience, then you could... Apply for and receive the subsidies, but you couldn't wait two or three months, four months, five months, six months until thing you know the dust settled. That would be a move you'd want to make immediately upon leaving your place of employment or losing coverage and going out on your own.
1: Gotcha. So we've kind of talked about individual plans, we've talked about um, exchange plans, um, and and even the caveat underneath that of of kind of the quote unquote Obamacare or the subsidy version of the exchange plans. Um, what other options do we have on the table for us?
0: Right. So those are, and, and both of those, and, you know, I'd really say they're two sides of the same coin. They're the same insurance plans. That's not really new. That's been, you could always have bought individual plans and and, and some guidelines around how those are administered changed under the Affordable Care Act, but that's been around for years. So, you know, something we're seeing a growing movement on is um, health share programs. So MediShare, like Liberty, Um, Sedera, several different health shares that were really born out of uh, a movement. And, And what these are is they would tell you that they are not health insurance. So they don't qualify as health insurance under the law, right? So if I'm an employer, I can't just offer, if I'm a large employer and the Affordable Care Act still requires me to offer health insurance to my employees that's affordable under the law, I can't, I can't use health shares, which I'm about to talk to, in place of health insurance. For an individual, I can use this if I think it's a good fit for me. Because let me stop and say, as of January 1st, 2019, the individual mandate, the requirement that an individual has insurance was phased out. So I no longer have to have insurance that is that fits the criteria for health insurance under the eyes of the federal government. I did up until... January 1st of this year. If I didn't have it, I had to pay a penalty, right? So, it was a couple thousand dollars. That's gone. So, that opens me up at least to make a decision for myself. Do I want to do something outside of traditional insurance? Now, that doesn't, there's the risk reward and then y'all's conversation at the beginning here about, you know, being more risk averse or less risk averse and what you want to do. The, the, The least risky thing you can do is going to be buy you know, a plan from a major insurer, like I said, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, Humana. On the other end of the spectrum here, or down the spectrum, rather, at least, is are the health share programs, and they're gaining a lot of traction. What this is, is really, um, it was a movement born out of a lot of Christian organizations that said, we want to offer a plan to people, you know, it's not insurance, and we want to offer it to to, to people of similar beliefs and similar lifestyles, healthier lifestyles, typically, um, is what they're aiming for, to, to, to pool their money together to purchase coverage in the event that it is needed for major events, right? So, and, and this industry does a lot to go out of the way to not use terms like deductible and copay and traditional insurance terms, because they're trying to be very clear that they are not insurance. So what it is, is if I have a family of four, I can spend a few to several hundred dollars a month, and have the health share commit to paying my claims if in the event of something major happening. So, if I were to have a major accident or have a major diagnosis, like a cancer diagnosis, the health share program, Liberty or Sedera or whatever the case may be, will pay my claims above you know, what we would traditionally call a deductible, but I think they call um, personal responsibility. You know, They have different terms for it. So, Think about it as a deductible. Say family, usually a very high deductible. Family deductible, ten thousand dollars. I'm on the hook for the first ten thousand. The health share pays everything from dollar ten thousand one up to say five hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars of claims. So it really functions in that sense a lot like insurance. The differences are they require typically a commitment to um, a certain lifestyle. So they say, look, you know. Some of them are more strict than others. Tobacco use, you're out with probably all of them. Um, and you can argue that may not necessarily be a bad thing. You know, alcohol use, food choices, things like that. They don't, most of them don't come along and say you have to strictly, you know, subscribe to a certain religious belief. But it's really more about living a clean lifestyle. And um, the other big thing is they will disqualify Qualify, uh, excuse me, pre-existing conditions. So they won't cover you for a condition that's brought in at least for a significant period of time, right? So it it can it can work for you, but you've got to fit into certain windows with them. Now the other side of that is again, they're not insurance. There's no requirement that they pay your claims. They can choose not to. Now what we're seeing, what I'm seeing, is they have a pretty good history so far of paying. The, of paying large claims, right? So I don't want to scare somebody off and say, you know, they're going to take your money and not pay your claims. Their goal is to pay claims, but they're trying to run a very lean operation to keep cost as low as possible, to be able to pay the claims, but also not carry a lot of surplus. And they don't have to—they don't have to carry the surpluses that um, and the reserves that an insurance company does have to carry, which allows them to be cheaper. You know. The question with anything like that is if there was a large run on the claims, you know, so all of a sudden claims were far outpacing premiums, could, could something like that, you know, enter into a phase where they were not able to, to meet those claims demands, right? That's yet to be seen, but um, it's something that somebody needs to consider if they're going that route because you've really got to dig deep on this stuff and say, you know, okay, it sounds like insurance, it's good enough. Well, will it be if you incur a $250,000 claim?
1: Yeah. And that's kind of the the analogy I keep thinking of is like the FDIC insurance on the bank. You know, what happens if everyone goes to withdraw all their savings on the same day? Uh, the government has said they're standing behind that. What we're saying with these uh, shared plans is that there's not that government entity on the back back end of things that's saying, if everyone has a claim on the same day, we'll, we'll prop up this system.
0: Correct. That's correct.
1: Interesting. Um, I, I actually know a few a few friends of mine that own small businesses in in and around East Tennessee have have their uh, have looked at that as an option almost for their whole team. I mean, I don't know if it's uh, mandated through the company, but um, as individuals, they've all chosen to take part in sort of those sorts of plans to try to keep their small business costs down as as they're getting started and off the ground.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, I've got a close family member who's done the same thing, and You know, what I tell them is that I'm going to keep an eye on it. And if, you know, some, if it starts to, if you start to see or smell smoke, or if I start to see or smell smoke, I'm going to let them know about it. But, you know, right now, I I like the movement from the standpoint of, you know, bringing competitive juice into the space um, is a positive thing. And that's, you know, coming from somebody who I'm traditionally a group health insurance, group employee benefits advisor and broker. I mean, we, You know, deal with the insurance companies all the time, and um, they they catch some flack, uh, honestly, and others they kind of just end up being the punching bag. But I do like other solutions coming into space to 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 freshen things up. So, but the question is, how much momentum will it get? Um, You know, will they be able to meet claims when these when these policyholders, for lack of a better word, or these participants mature into having some of those claims you know they really are targeting the you know the the healthiest among us right so that is how they're able to keep costs low um but eventually when claims start to appear will they have the 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 money available to cover it
1: right that makes sense what what else do we have uh to consider here
0: yeah so you know i think a lot of the um the, the the hot topic out there right now is around association health plans. So that's something, you know, the the current administration came along and they said last year, they said, we want to make it easier for individuals and small businesses to pool together to purchase insurance as though they're a large entity. And, and, and believe it or not, the associate or excuse me, the administration, they're coming from the right place on this. Larger entities do get to negotiate for better terms, you know, against or across from. The insurance companies and and the whole insurance industry. So typically, the larger you are, the more attractive you are going to be uh, to an insurer, and you know you'll get you'll get sometimes better concessions, better rates, what have you. So the idea here, everybody can join together, have a have a class, a pool of risk, and be able to negotiate for better rates. So we've been you know watching this develop uh, over the last several months. And really, this existed. This framework existed already, but there's tighter there's tighter constraints around it. So, you know, an association had to be in existence for several years. An association had to have a greater purpose than just having people band together to buy insurance. It had to be an industry association, um, some regional associations, and things like that. So, and and a, a lot for a lot of them, you know, there were association health plans for say like I said, a certain industry for you know, construction industry. But they didn't join together just to do the health plan. It was one of many benefits available to them by virtue of having that association. So the federal government came along and said, let's make that a lot easier. You don't have to have been an association for several years, and you can form an association for the sole purpose of buying health insurance. So then the market starts to react to that. But that federal guideline is really subject to the Department of Insurance in each of the 50 states. You can't just with a, you know, come in and swoop in with an edict and say this is going to change the entire industry. The Department of Insurance is of each of the 50 states gets their say on it as well. So that's really where we are right now. We have several states in the double digits and you know, the teens who are full-on green light saying you know, let's do this as, as much as we're allowed to you got about the same number of states who are full on saying red light. And even this morning, I was looking in preparation uh, for this podcast today, said, well, what's the news on it today? Well, out of North Carolina, they're trying to advance the ball on that. And out of Alaska, they're trying to pull back from it, right? So kind of state by state, what is being allowed to be done? So I think that the market is still responding to that in a lot of ways. Um, You know, I know Texas is a very large state where it seems like There's going to be a lot of movement out of Texas for association health plans. Um, Tennessee, where we are, Rob, you know, is we haven't really heard a peep out of the Department of Insurance yet about um, what they're going to allow and not. So in in some ways, the state of Tennessee is in a wait and see mode as well, uh, as well as some other states around us. So we're kind of trying to see. But there are companies that are, you know, coming online that are trying to take advantage of this new opportunity um, so there's sort of a race to, to first on that with a lot of different companies.
1: I'll, I'll put some context to this. Um, we've talked on previous shows that, uh, my wife's a realtor. And so, the, you know, she's a member of the realtor association, national organization, hundreds of thousands of members exist for a bigger cause than just insurance. And that was something that, that a lot of realtors leaned on, um, that kind of association coverage before, Um, some of it got, um, you know, uh, I guess was shifted to the side when the Affordable Care Act came into focus, you know. And so now there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of realtors that are kind of waiting and, you know, bated breath for whatever that next step is, because it would open a huge door to them again. And so I think for a lot of um, likely a lot of the the freelancers listening to the show um, myself included we have access to things like um, you know marketing associations if you're in the you know creative space um, you know bar associations if you're in the legal space most of us are members of associations like that whether we've re- really considered it or not and so for folks that are looking for viable access and, and even more so if you're in one of the states that has already you know, um, made a favorable stance or or step in that direction, you start to look around and and kind of assess where your avenues are for that sort of thing. And maybe that's a good thing for folks to be doing, getting plugged into some of those associations a little deeper to find out if they're making statements or if, if any communications are coming out and as they prepare for that door to open.
2: Yeah, I just want to bounce in and say that that I think I hope is the main takeaway is uh, when people are considering going out um, on their own, that they look into association uh, benefit plans for health care insurance <laughs> so that they can um, at least have that data. Because as many people as have come up to me and had questions about this over the last year or so, nobody has ever mentioned Oh, I, you know, I looked at the Colorado Bar Association's health plan and it's egregiously expensive, which it might be. But, um, you know, at least put that on the docket to look into and consider. And by the way, they do have one. The Colorado Bar Association has a health plan. so.
1: Yeah, I I recall and, and Austin, your thoughts on this are, are welcomed back when this was a thing before. Some of the association plans were not quite as um uh, you know, elaborate um, uh, as some of the individual policies or, or group group policies would be. But we we really don't have much to go on as far as looking forward on this because we're so early in the process.
0: That's a fair statement. And, you know, again, it, it would almost be nice to do a follow-up six months from now and see where the industry is on that. But like Sarah said, you, I would recommend every person out there take it upon themselves to do an exhaustive search to see what's available for them because it's going to move fairly quickly over 2019. Options that aren't there today will be there tomorrow and then even more, you know, 60 days from now when we have a little bit, when we get past this April 1st magic date when a lot of the stuff becomes allowed. Um, you know, associations, they uh, it, it, it will be interesting to see What kind of associations come up? Because some of the more traditional ones, yeah, it's if you have the association of, you know, coal miners or the association of people who change light bulbs on top of cell towers, and that was what it is, they're going to be more expensive potentially than other industries, simply because the association is going to be a cross-section of the United States of America. Is it going to be healthier and more attractive to you know, from a claim standpoint, and from a insurance and a reinsurance standpoint, than the average swath of America. That's you know, that's how an association will distinguish distinguish itself. Excuse me, and offer better rates. Is you know, the larger you get, the more representative sample you are of the country as a whole, and the closer to the mean level of health and therefore cost you would you would become.
1: Yeah, I think if that it, makes sense. It does make <laughs> sense. You're just you're looking for a bigger pool, more stable pool so that you have more buying power and you have something that's more indicative from the insurance provider's perspective of a, a larger population.
0: Yeah. With association plans, with individual plans, you know, one thing I would say that's outside of health insurance that, you know, if I'm trying to distinguish these different things here. So if it's health insurance, individual plans, association plans, you can always participate in a health savings account if your coverage is HSA compliant, right? So most plans these days are, if I have doctor visit copays, prescription drug copays as part of my plan, it is disqualified from participating in a health savings account. Most plans don't have that now, in particular if you're on your own, you're saying, look, I just want coverage for the big ticket stuff, you know, for the day-to-day stuff. I can wing it. I can live with it. I just need to make sure if I have that $250,000 claim, I'm not on the hook for $250,000. There's a very good chance your plan qualifies for a health savings account. Everybody needs to be thinking about that. As an individual, as long as your insurance is qualified for it, you can open up one. Optum Bank is a great way for you to do that. Um, And you can set aside up to $3,500 tax-free. And if you have family coverage, $7,000 per year tax-free to spend on medical, dental, and vision expenses. The money never goes away. It's never taxable you know, and you can you could earn interest on it, you can invest it, and the investment growth is not taxable either as long as you spend it on medical, dental, and vision expenses. So it's a great way for you to avoid having to pay income tax on items that you need to pay for for your health and your family's health, just sort of as a side note to tie in. If you're on a cost share or a health share plan, like we talked about Liberty, Sedera, and those others, those are not insurance, and therefore you can't have a health savings account Paired with those, it has to be insurance under the eyes of the law.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, we we take, make use of um, the HSA even with with the plan I have access to, and it's uh, it's fantastic in, in multiple settings. I mean, especially if your family, it, it seems like it's beneficial if your family is especially healthy or especially unhealthy. they Both seem uh, to take a special good use of the HSA.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's either you're spending the money and saving the tax on it, or you're able to save it for a rainy day if and when something happens. And then now you've got an account with enough money to cover your entire individual liability.
1: So one of the things we've talked about in a feature show where we talked about different types of insurance, not health insurance, was kind of guiding the decision of what to look for in, um, in a broker. Uh, if you're, if you're shopping, who, who should you be checking with and what kind of characteristics of, of agencies or, or brokers should you consider, um, you obviously are, are are a broker in an agency here in Chattanooga that has offices in a, cu- a couple of different places here in East Tennessee. But so um, you know, full disclosure on that front. But from your perspective, what are wise things uh, for for folks who are shopping for coverage? Uh, what what should we be considering or looking for? Mm-hmm.
0: So for you know, for your audience, I would say that for if 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 I'm a freelancer and I'm thinking you know, what do I need in a broker? What you really need is just somebody to get you access to the market. I mean, there's a company here in Chattanooga, American Exchange. It's easy, americanexchange.com. You know, they work in all 50 states and they can show you your options with all insurance companies who offer in your state. You know, here's the rates, here's the plan um, and get you enrolled. It's, It's really a transactional thing for buying individual coverage. Now you can always go directly to your own insurance companies as well. And you know, not use a broker. I think it, for most states, it doesn't cost you anything to use American Exchange because it's all built into the rates anyway. Whatever they earn off of it. So, you know, to me, for an individual, it's very transactional. It's making sure that as efficiently as possible, you're getting all those options available to you. If you're with a, if you have a group, so you're an employer, you're a small and growing employer, and you're thinking about uh, starting a benefits program for your employees, then you know you need somebody who's obviously familiar with the market excuse me, the markets in your state and region. Because just like I said before, where there's 50 states and 50 departments of insurance, the states can be very different from each other. Chattanooga is here in Tennessee, but just across the border, 20 minutes away in Alabama, the insurance market is very, very different. So you want to find an agency or a broker who's familiar with your state markets and who really focuses their energy on that regionally. Um, some An agency who's not afraid to talk about options that aren't just regular insurance too, right? Everything we've talked about today and a couple other things we haven't talked about because they're still developing, They're all they're all viable options. They have their pluses, they have their minuses. You need somebody who is willing to talk about the pluses and the minuses of everything, not just the pluses of what they want you to do and the minuses of what they don't want you to do, but really help you take a a neutral stance on this and figure out what's best for you and your family or for you and your company. That's what I would say.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, awesome. Well, so you are uh, a broker with the RBA uh, benefits group and you guys have offices here in Chattanooga and as well as Knoxville where, where Sarah and I um, originated from. Um, uh, Tell us just, uh, you know, uh, 15 seconds on your agency and, and also want to mention that, um, you suggested off air that will include your email address in the show notes. So if folks have specific questions or, or want to take this a little bit further, they can reach out to you directly and tell us a little, a little bit about RBA.
0: 15 seconds. as a challenge. I've never done anything in 15 seconds. <laughs> now only have 10 seconds left, but Russ Blakely and associates RBA benefits. We are um, us and our partner firm, Trinity benefits and Knoxville. We're the largest independent agency in Tennessee. So we're not publicly traded. We're, you know, regional to the area. Um, We make all of our own decisions here. But we work mostly with employers, right? We like to work with large employers, particularly those who are self-insured. But we work with a lot of smaller employers who are growing as well in the Tennessee area, Georgia, Alabama, North Carolina are the states we operate in mostly. So, you know, that's what we do. But at the same time, I like talking about this stuff. I'm more than happy to answer questions people have, even if it's an individual who's got a question about something we talked about. You know, my email address will be in the show notes, but it's austin at rbabenefits.com. More than happy to answer any questions somebody has.
1: Well, awesome. Austin, thanks so much for joining us and and bestowing your wisdom upon us.
0: All right. Happy to do it. And If we need to do a follow-up, more than happy to participate in that as well. Thank you both for inviting me on.
1: Thanks, Austin. You bet.
0: Great. Well, Thanks.
1: We'll sync up with Austin here in a few months as we've given uh, – have been given a little more access to the association plans and what that sh- shapes up to be in case that's a good option for folks. So we'll, we'll look for a little bit of a, um, a follow-up uh, on that front later this year. But I um, uh, hope that's been helpful for you guys listening that have had questions about insurance. It certainly is. Uh, a messy subject in general just in general uh, or just requiring a lot of knowledge a lot of understanding that a lot of technicians in their current trade may or may not have it's also a really weird season of flux where things are changing pretty rapidly just in the last five years so much has changed and so um hopefully that helps you give a little little sense of of where we are and where we're moving. um Sarah, thanks. Why don't you tell folks where they can find said show notes for today's show?
2: I believe the internet will give them to to you at unfederated.studio.
1: Awesome. Well, um, thanks again for Austin joining us and a a good show. Um, We'll see you next week with uh, a little bit more on this uh, unfederated life.
0: You can find show notes from this episode at unfederated.studio. And if this podcast has helped you in your journey, say thanks by rating and reviewing the show in Apple Podcasts.